The Freedom of the Soul Delivered in London, 5th November, 1896 The Kata Upanishad, which we have been studying, was written much later than that to which we now turn, the Chandogya. The language is more modern and the thought more organised. In the older Upanishads, the language is very archaic, like that of the hymn portion of the Vedas, and one has to wade sometimes through quite a mass of unnecessary things to get to the essential doctrines. The ritualistic literature about which I told you, which forms the second division of the Vedas, has left a good deal of its mark upon this old Upanishad, so that more than half of it is still ritualistic. There is, however, one great gain in studying the very old Upanishads. You trace, as it were, the historical growth of spiritual ideas. In the more recent Upanishads, the spiritual ideas have been collected and brought into one place, as in the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, which we may perhaps look upon as the last of the Upanishads, you do not find any inkling of these ritualistic ideas. The Gita is like a bouquet composed of the beautiful flowers of spiritual truths collected from the Upanishads. But in the Gita, you cannot study the rise of the spiritual ideas. You cannot trace them to their source. To do that, as has been pointed out by many, you must study the Vedas. The great idea of holiness that has been attached to these books has preserved them more than any other book in the world from mutilation. In them, thoughts at their highest and at their lowest have been preserved, the essential and the non-essential, the most ennobling teachings and the simplest matters of detail stand side by side, for nobody has dared to touch them. Commentators came and tried to smooth them down and to bring out wonderful new ideas from the old things. They tried to find spiritual ideas in even the most ordinary statements. But the texts remained, and as such, they are the most wonderful historical study. We all know that in the scriptures of every religion, changes were made to suit the growing spirituality of later times. One word was changed here, and another put in there and so on. This probably has not been done with the Vedic literature, or if ever done, it is almost imperceptible. So we have this great advantage. We are able to study thoughts in their original significance, to note how they developed, how from materialistic ideas, finer and finer spiritual ideas evolved until they attained their greatest height in the Vedanta. Descriptions of some of the old manners and customs are also there, but they do not appear much in the Upanishads. The language used is peculiar, 
terse, mnemonic. The writers of these books simply jotted down these lines as helps to remember certain facts, which they supposed were already well known. In a narrative, perhaps, which they are telling, they take it for granted that it is well known to everyone they are addressing. Thus a great difficulty arises. We scarcely know the real meaning of any one of these stories, because the traditions have nearly died out, and the little that is left of them has been very much exaggerated. Many new interpretations have been put upon them, so that when you find them in the Puranas, they have already become lyrical poems. Just as in the West we find this prominent fact in the political development of Western races, that they cannot bear absolute rule, that they are always trying to prevent any one man from ruling over them, and are gradually advancing to higher and higher democratic ideas, higher and higher ideas of physical liberty. So, in Indian metaphysics, exactly the same phenomenon appears in the development of spiritual life. The multiplicity of gods gave place to the one god of the universe, and in the Upanishads, there is a rebellion even against that one God. Not only was the idea of many governors of the universe ruling their destinies unbearable, but it was also intolerable that there should be one person ruling this universe. This is the first thing that strikes us. The idea grows and grows until it attains its climax. In almost all of the Upanishads, we find the climax coming at the last, and that is the dethroning of this God of the universe. The personality of God vanishes. The impersonality comes. God is no more a person, no more a human being, however magnified and exaggerated, who rules this universe. But he has become an embodied principle in every being, eminent in the whole universe. It would be illogical to go from the personal God to the impersonal and at the same time to leave man as a person. So the personal man is broken down and man as principle is built up. The person is only a phenomenon. The principle is behind it. Thus from both sides simultaneously we find the breaking down of personalities and the approach towards principles, the personal God approaching the impersonal, the personal man approaching the impersonal man. Then come the succeeding stages of the gradual convergence of the two advancing lines of the impersonal God and the impersonal man. And the Upanishads embody the stages through which these two lines at last become one. And the last word of each Upanishad is, Thou art that. There is but one eternally blissful principle, and that one is manifesting itself as all this variety. Then came the philosophers. The work of the Upanishads seems to have ended at that point. 
The next was taken up by the philosophers. The framework was given them by the Upanishads and they had to fill in the details. So many questions would naturally arise. Taking for granted that there is but one impersonal principle which is manifesting itself in all these manifold forms, how is it that the one becomes many? It is another way of putting the same old question, which in its crude form comes into the human heart as the inquiry into the cause of evil and so forth. Why does evil exist in the world, and what is its cause? But the same question has now become refined, abstracted. No more is it asked from the platform of the senses why we are unhappy, but from the platform of philosophy. How is it that this one principle becomes manifold? And the answer, as we have seen, the best answer that India has produced is the theory of Maya, which says that it really has not become manifold, that it really has not lost any of its real nature. Manifoldness is only apparent. Man is only apparently a person, but in reality he is the impersonal being. God is a person only apparently, but really he is the impersonal being. Even in this answer there have been succeeding stages and philosophers have varied in their opinions. All Indian philosophers did not admit this theory of Maya. Possibly most of them did not. There are dualists with a crude sort of dualism who would not allow the question to be asked but stifled it at its very birth. They said, You have no right to ask such a question. You have no right to ask for an explanation. It is simply the will of God and we have to submit to it quietly. There is no liberty for the human soul. Everything is predestined. What we shall do, have, enjoy and suffer. And when suffering comes, it is our duty to endure it patiently. If we do not, we shall be punished all the more. How do we know that? because the Vedas say so. And thus they have their texts and their meanings and they want to enforce them. There are others who, though not admitting the Maya theory, stand midway. They say that the whole of this creation forms, as it were, the body of God. God is the soul of all souls and the whole of nature. In the case of individual souls, contraction comes from evil-doing. When a man does anything evil, his soul begins to contract and his power is diminished and goes on decreasing until he does good works, when it expands again. One idea seems to be common in all the Indian systems and, I think, in every system in the world whether they know it or not, and that is what I should call the divinity of man. There is no one system in the world, 
no real religion which does not hold the idea that the human soul, whatever it be, or whatever its relation to God, is essentially pure and perfect, whether expressed in the language of mythology, allegory or philosophy. Its real nature is blessedness and power, not weakness and misery. Somehow or other this misery has come. The crude systems may call it a personified evil, a devil or an Ahriman, to explain how this misery came. Other systems may try to make a god and a devil in one, who makes some people miserable and others happy, without any reason whatsoever. Others again, more thoughtful, bring in the theory of Maya, and so forth. But one fact stands out clearly, and it is with this that we have to deal. After all, these philosophical ideas and systems are but gymnastics of the mind, intellectual exercises, the one great idea that seems to me to be clear and comes out through masses of superstition in every country and in every religion is the one luminous idea that man is divine, the divinity is our nature. Whatever else comes is a mere superimposition, as the Vedanta calls it. Something has been superimposed. But that divine nature never dies. In the most degraded, as well as the most saintly, it is ever present. It has to be called out, and it will work itself out. We have to ask, and it will manifest itself. The people of old knew that fire lived in flint and in dry wood, but friction was necessary to call it out. So this fire of freedom and purity is the nature of every soul and not a quality because qualities can be acquired and therefore can be lost. The soul is one with freedom and the soul is one with existence and the soul is one with knowledge. The Satchit Ananda, existence, knowledge, bliss, absolute is the nature the birthright of the soul, and all the manifestations that we see are its expressions, dimly or brightly manifesting itself. Even death is but a manifestation of that real existence. Birth and death, life and decay, degeneration and regeneration are all manifestations of that oneness. So knowledge however it manifests itself, either as ignorance or as learning, is but the manifestation of that same chit, the essence of knowledge. The difference is only in degree and not in kind. The difference in knowledge between the lowest worm that crawls under our feet and the highest genius that the world may produce is only one of degree and not of kind. The Vedantin thinker boldly says that the enjoyments in this life, even the most degraded joys, are but manifestations of that one divine bliss, 
the essence of the soul. This idea seems to be the most prominent in Vedanta, and, as I have said, it appears to me that every religion holds it. I have yet to know the religion which does not. It is the one universal idea working through all religions. Take the Bible, for instance. You find there the allegorical statement that the first man, Adam, was pure and that his purity was obliterated by his evil deeds afterwards. It is clear from this allegory that they thought that the nature of the primitive man was perfect. The impurities that we see, the weaknesses that we feel, are but superimpositions on that nature, and the subsequent history of the Christian religions shows that they also believe in the possibility, nay, the certainty of regaining that old state. That is the whole history of the Bible, Old and New Testaments together. So with the Mohammedans. They also believed in Adam and the purity of Adam, and through Muhammad, the way was opened to regain that lost state. So with the Buddhists. They believed in the state called Nirvana, which is beyond this relative world. It is exactly the same as the Brahman of the Vedantins, and the whole system of the Buddhists is founded upon the idea of regaining that lost state of Nirvana. In every system, we find this doctrine present, that you cannot get anything which is not yours already. You are indebted to nobody in this universe. You claim your own birthright, as it has been most poetically expressed by a great Vedantin philosopher in the title of one of his books, The Attainment of Our Own Empire. That empire is ours. We have lost it, and we have to regain it. The Mayavadin, however, says that this losing of the empire was an hallucination. You never lost it. This is the only difference. Although the systems agree so far that we had an empire and that we have lost it, they give us varied advice as how to regain it. One says you must perform certain ceremonies, pay certain sums of money to certain idols, eat certain sorts of food, live in a peculiar fashion to regain that empire. Another says that if you weep and prostrate yourselves and ask pardon of some being beyond nature, you will regain that empire. Again, another says if you love such a being with all your heart, you will regain that empire. All this varied advice is in the Upanishads, and as I go on, you will find it so. But the last, and the greatest counsel, is that you need not weep at all. You need not go through all these ceremonies and need not take any notice of how to regain your empire because you never lost it. Why should you go to seek for that which you never lost? You are pure already. 
you are free already. If you think you are free, free you are this moment. And if you think you are bound, bound you will be. This is a very bold statement. And as I told you at the beginning of this course, I shall have to speak very boldly. It may frighten you now, but when you think it over and realise it in your own life, then you will come to know that what I say is true. For supposing that freedom is not your nature, by no manner of means can you become free. Suppose you were free, and in some way you lost that freedom. That shows you were not free to begin with. Had you been free, what could have made you lose it? The independent can never be made dependent. If it is really dependent, its independence was an hallucination. Of the two sides then, which would you take? If you say that the soul was by its own nature pure and free, it naturally follows that there was nothing in this universe which could make it bound or limited. But if there was anything in nature which could bind the soul, it naturally follows that it was not free, and your statement that it was free is a delusion. So if it is possible for us to attain freedom, the conclusion is inevitable that the soul is by its nature free. It cannot be otherwise. Freedom means independence of anything outside. And that means that nothing outside itself could work upon it as a cause. The soul is causeless. And from this follow all the great ideas that we have. You cannot establish the immortality of the soul unless you grant that it is by its nature free, or in other words, that it cannot be acted upon by anything outside. For death is an effect produced by some outside cause. I drink poison and I die, thus showing that my body can be acted upon by something outside that is called poison. But if it be true that the soul is free, it naturally follows that nothing can affect it and it can never die. Freedom, immortality, blessedness all depend upon the soul being beyond the law of causation, beyond this maya. Of these two, which will you take? Either make the first a delusion or make the second a delusion. Certainly, I will make the second a delusion. It is more consonant with all my feelings and aspirations. I am perfectly aware that I am free by nature, and I will not admit that this bondage is true and my freedom a delusion. This discussion goes on in all philosophies in some form or other. Even in the most modern philosophies, you will find the same discussion arising. There are two parties. One says that there is no soul, 
that the idea of soul is a delusion produced by the repeated transit of particles of matter, bringing about the combination which you call the body or the brain, that the impressions of freedom is the result of the vibrations and motions and continuous transit of these particles. There were Buddhistic sects who held the same view and illustrated it by this example. If you take a torch and whirl it round rapidly, there will be a circle of light. That circle does not really exist, because the torch is changing place every moment. We are but bundles of little particles, which in their rapid whirling produce the delusion of a permanent soul. The other party states that in the rapid succession of thought, matter occurs as a delusion and does not really exist. So we see one side claiming that spirit is a delusion and the other that matter is a delusion. Which side will you take? Of course, we will take the spirit and deny matter. The arguments are similar for both, only on the spirit side, the argument is a little stronger. For nobody has ever seen what matter is. We can only feel ourselves. I never knew a man who could feel matter outside of himself. Nobody was ever able to jump outside of himself. Therefore the argument is a little stronger on the side of the spirit. Secondly, the spirit theory explains the universe, while materialism does not. Hence the materialistic explanation is illogical. If you boil down all the philosophies and analyse them, you will find that they are reduced to one or other of these two positions. So here too, in a more intricate form, in a more philosophical form, we find the same question about natural purity and freedom. One says that the first is a delusion, and the other that the second is a delusion. And of course we side with the second in believing that our bondage is a delusion. The solution of the Vedanta is that we are not bound, we are free already. Not only so, but to say or to think that we are bound is dangerous, it is a mistake, it is self-hypnotism. As soon as you say, I am bound, I am weak, I am helpless, woe unto you, you rivet one more chain upon yourself, do not say it, Do not think it. I have heard of a man who lived in a forest and used to repeat day and night, Shivoham, I am the blessed one. And one day a tiger fell upon him and dragged him away to kill him. People on the other side of the river saw it and heard the voice so long as voice remained in him, saying, Shivoham, even in the very jaws of the tiger. There have been many such men. There have been cases of men who, 
while being cut to pieces, have blessed their enemies. I am he, I am he, and so art thou. I am pure and perfect, and so are all my enemies. You are he, and so am I. That is the position of strength. Nevertheless, there are great and wonderful things in the religions of the dualists. Wonderful is the idea of the personal God apart from nature, whom we worship and love. Sometimes this idea is very soothing. But, says the Vedanta, the soothing is something like the effect that comes from an opiate, not natural. It brings weakness in the long run, and what this world wants today, more than it ever did before, is strength. It is weakness, says the Vedanta, which is the cause of all misery in this world. Weakness is the one cause of suffering. We become miserable because we are weak. We lie, steal, kill, and commit other crimes because we are weak. We suffer because we are weak. We die because we are weak. Where there is nothing to weaken us, there is no death nor sorrow. We are miserable through delusion. Give up the delusion and the whole thing vanishes. It is plain and simple indeed. Through all these philosophical discussions and tremendous mental gymnastics, we come to this one religious idea, the simplest in the whole world. The monistic Vedanta is the simplest form in which you can put truth. To teach dualism was a tremendous mistake made in India and elsewhere, because people did not look at the ultimate principles, but only thought of the process, which is very intricate indeed. To many, these tremendous philosophical and logical propositions were alarming. They thought these things could not be made universal, could not be followed in everyday practical life, and that under the guise of such a philosophy, much laxity of living would arise. But I do not believe at all that monistic ideas preached to the world would produce immorality and weakness. On the contrary, I have reason to believe that it is the only remedy there is. If this be the truth, why let people drink ditch water when the stream of life is flowing by? If this be the truth, that they are all pure, why not at this moment teach it to the whole world? Why not teach it with the voice of thunder to every man that is born, to saints and sinners, men, women and children, to the man on the throne and to the man sweeping the streets? It appears now a very big and a very great undertaking. To many it appears very startling, but that is because of superstition, nothing else. By eating all sorts of bad and indigestible food, or by starving ourselves, we are incompetent to eat a good meal. We have listened to words of weakness from our childhood. 
You hear people say that they do not believe in ghosts, but at the same time, there are very few who do not get a little creepy sensation in the dark. It is simply superstition. So with all religious superstitions. There are people in this country who, if I told them that there was no such being as the devil, will think all religion is gone. Many people have said to me, how can there be religion without a devil? How can there be religion without someone to direct us? How can we live without being ruled by somebody? We like to be so treated because we have become used to it. We are not happy until we feel we have been reprimanded by somebody every day. The same superstition. But however terrible it may seem now, the time will come when we shall look back each one of us, and smile at every one of those superstitions which covered the pure and eternal soul, and repeat with gladness, with truth, and with strength, I am free, and was free, and always will be free. This monistic idea will come out of Vedanta, and it is the one idea that deserves to live. The scriptures may perish tomorrow. Whether this idea first flashed into the brains of Hebrews or of people living in the Arctic regions, nobody cares. For this is the truth, and truth is eternal. And truth itself teaches that it is not the special property of any individual or nation. Men, animals and gods are all common recipients of this one truth. Let them all receive it. Why make life miserable? Why let people fall into all sorts of superstitions? I will give ten thousand lives if twenty of them will give up their superstition. Not only in this country, but in the land of its very birth, if you tell people this truth, they are frightened. They say, this idea is for sannyasins who give up the world and live in forests. For them, it is all right. But for us poor householders, we must all have some sort of fear. We must have ceremonies, and so on. Dualistic ideas have ruled the world long enough, and this is the result. Why not make a new experiment? It may take ages for all minds to receive monism, but why not begin now? If we have told it to twenty persons in our lives, then we have done a great work. There is one idea which often militates against it. It is this. It is all very well to say, I am the pure, the blessed, but I cannot show it always in my life. That is true. The ideal is always very hard. Every child that is born sees the sky overhead, very far away. But is that any reason why we should not look towards the sky? Would it mend matters to go towards superstition? If we cannot get nectar, would it mend matters for us to drink poison? Would it be any help for us? 
because we cannot realise the truth immediately, to go into darkness and yield to weakness and superstition. I have no objection to dualism in many of its forms. I like most of them. But I have objections to every form of teaching which inculcates weakness. This is the one question I put to every man, woman or child when they are in physical, mental or spiritual training. Are you strong? Do you feel strength? For I know it is truth alone that gives strength. I know that truth alone gives life. And nothing but going towards reality will make us strong. And none will reach truth until he is strong. Every system, therefore, which weakens the mind, makes one superstitious, makes one mope, makes one desire all sorts of wild impossibilities, mysteries and superstitions, I do not like, because its effect is dangerous. Such systems never bring any good. Such things create morbidity in the mind, make it weak, so weak that in course of time it will be almost impossible to receive truth or live up to it. Strength, therefore, is the one thing needful. Strength is the medicine for the world's disease. Strength is the medicine which the poor must have when tyrannised over by the rich. Strength is the medicine that the ignorant must have when oppressed by the learned. And it is the medicine that sinners must have when tyrannised over by other sinners. And nothing gives such strength as this idea of monism. Nothing makes us so moral as this idea of monism. Nothing makes us work so well at our best and highest as when all the responsibility is thrown upon ourselves. I challenge every one of you. How will you behave if I put a little baby in your hands? Your whole life will be changed for the moment. Whatever you may be, you must become selfless for the time being. You will give up all your criminal ideas as soon as responsibility is thrown upon you. Your whole character will change. So if the whole responsibility is thrown upon our own shoulders, we shall be at our highest and best. When we have nobody to grope towards, no devil to lay our blame upon, no personal God to carry our burdens, when we are alone responsible, then we shall rise to our highest and best. I am responsible for my fate. I am the bringer of good unto myself. I am the bringer of evil. I am the pure and blessed one. We must reject all thoughts that assert to the contrary. I have neither death nor fear. I have neither caste nor creed. I have neither father, nor mother, nor brother, neither friend, nor foe. For I am existence, knowledge, and bliss absolute. I am the blissful one. I am the blissful one. I am not bound either by virtue or vice, by happiness or misery. Pilgrimages and books and ceremonials 
can never bind me. I have neither hunger nor thirst. The body is not mine, nor am I subject to the superimpositions and decay that have come to the body. I am existence, knowledge and bliss absolute. I am the blissful one. I am the blissful one. This, says the Vedanta, is the only prayer that we should have. This is the only way to reach the goal, to tell ourselves and to tell everybody else that we are divine. And as we go on repeating this, strength comes. He who falters at first will get stronger and stronger and the voice will increase in volume until the truth takes possession of our hearts and courses through our veins and permeates our bodies. Delusion will vanish as the light becomes more and more effulgent. Load after load of ignorance will vanish. And then will come a time when all else has disappeared and the sun alone shines. <laughs>